a few weeks ago I told you that God's providence is like glitter. It gets everywhere because it is everywhere, and God's providence or sovereignty is all over the pages of the Bible. But providence isn't the only attribute of God that's all over the pages of Scripture. God's mercy is also all over the pages of Scripture. In fact, as soon as Adam and Eve sin in Genesis 3, what are they met with? Mercy. God comes to them with tenderness and compassion. Do they still have to deal with the consequences of their sin? Absolutely. And so do we. We still have to deal with the consequences of their sin, don't we? But we see God mercifully interacting with Adam and Eve after they have flat out rebelled against him. And as you read the Bible from beginning to end, this is how God deals with sinful mankind. He's merciful. And one of my favorite preachers, the Puritan Richard Sibbs, is very helpful when it comes to understanding God's mercy and what it looks like when it comes to us. I've been reading his exposition of 2 Corinthians chapter 1, which is just a whole book in and of itself, where he discusses in length what it means that God is the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, 2 Corinthians 1, 3. The writings of Richard Sibbs have influenced notable preachers and theologians like John Owen, J.C. Ryle, Charles Spurgeon, and more recently, John Stott and Martin Lloyd-Jones, J.I. Packer, Mark Dever, and Tim Keller. Richard Sibbs has been a great help to me and to countless others. In his day, he was given a few nicknames. He was called the Sweet Dropper. That's my favorite one. He's called the Sweet Dropper or the Honey-Mouthed Preacher. And he was called the Heavenly Doctor Sibs because his preaching would come along and comfort you and help heal up your wounds, the wounds of your heart and soul. And he was given these nicknames because his sermons were consistently encouraging. In his preaching, he sought to highlight the grace and the mercy, and the love of Jesus. Here's what Richard Sibbs said about gospel-centered preachers. He said, They woo for Christ, and they open the riches, beauty, honor, and all that is lovely in Him. It was even said that heathen men would stay away from Sibbs' preaching for fear of being converted. He was so gracious in his preaching and consistently highlighted how loving and merciful Jesus is that pagans would avoid church because they knew that if they heard Richard Sibbs speaking about Jesus Christ, then they would get saved. Just like the Apostle Paul said in Romans 2.4, it's the kindness of God that leads men to repentance. And unregenerate men in Sib's day knew this, and so they stayed away from his church and they stayed away from his preaching. That's why he was called the sweet dropper or the honey mouth preacher or the heavenly Dr. Sibs. Here's an example of his exposition from 2 Corinthians 1, which I've been enjoying lately. He says, God is styled a father of mercies to thee, a God of bounty, 
all is to allure thee to repentance, to allure thee to come in. He is not merciful by accident, but he is naturally merciful in himself. He hath bowels of mercy in himself. Mercy pleaseth him, Micah 7, 18. He is more glorious in his mercy than in any other attribute. His mercies are like himself. There is not one attribute set down more in Scripture than mercy. It is the name whereby he will be known. Exodus 34, 6, where he describes it and he tells us his name. What is the name of God? His long-suffering and mercy. The scripture doth wonderfully enlarge his mercy beyond all dimensions whatsoever. God's mercy is the one attribute revealed in scripture more than any other. God is more glorious in his mercy than in any other attribute And his mercy is revealed more in Scripture because of what? Because of our sin. There's a whole lot of sin in the Bible, right? And because there's a whole lot of sin revealed in the Bible, then there's a whole lot of God's mercy too. Which is why Richard Sibbs said this. There is more mercy in Christ than sin in us. That is good news, my friends. We all know our hearts We all know our sin. It is ever present with us and at times it feels like the most powerful force in the entire world, doesn't it? But as we'll see today in Luke chapter 1, there's far more mercy in Jesus than there is sin in us. And that's good news that I need to hear. And it's what the characters in our story need to hear too. So Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 57 Hear the word of the merciful God that we serve. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, his name is John. And they all wondered. God's mercy and God's compassion and God's tenderness is seen here in the fact that Elizabeth delivers a baby. It's a very personal mercy here. We'll see the corporate aspect to God's mercy as it relates to the rest of the nation later on when Zechariah tells us about that. But here it's a very personal mercy. God himself has personally assisted Elizabeth, personally comforted her as she gave birth. Now how so? Remember, Elizabeth is old. She is advanced in years. Imagine giving birth at age 60, 70, 80. I don't know. I don't know how old she was. But Luke tells us two times she was advanced in years. And he refers to her again as being in her old age. So Elizabeth is very old. But God has mercy on her through her delivery. Luke wants us to know at the very beginning of his gospel that God is full of mercy, that he is rich in mercy. He tells us this in verse 58, that the Lord had shown her great mercy. This isn't just a little bit of mercy from God. 
This mercy was great. The Greek word great here is megaluno. It, it sounds like what it is. It, it means mega, great, big. It means to magnify. So God's mercy was megaluno. It was enormous, large, and overwhelming to Elizabeth as she gave birth. I love that Jesus is not stingy with his mercy. He just throws it out like Oprah. There's mercy for you. There's mercy for you. There's mercy for Sue. Look underneath your seats. There's mercy for everyone. That's how Jesus is with sinners. He is not stingy with his mercy. He's not stingy with his compassion. He's not stingy with his tenderness. He comes to us in all of our sufferings. And he comforts us. So far from being this detached and distracted and disinterested curmudgeon, Jesus is very much concerned with all of our sufferings and hardships. He is very much moved by and concerned with what you are going through right now. As I typed that sentence up this last week as I was working on this sermon I had to stop, and Jesus reminded me again that he is very much moved and concerned by what is happening in my life. I literally had to stop as I would type that sentence up, and I had to believe again that Jesus cares for me and all that I'm going through in my life. And here in Luke 1, he cares about an old woman who is dilated and is being told, it's time to push. This is megaluno mercy that shows up in the maternity ward. But we have to use our imaginations here. Imagine Elizabeth screaming at Zechariah, I can't do this. I can't do this. I'm too old. I'm advanced in years, honey. Remember what happened to Zechariah a few weeks ago, earlier in the chapter? He's mute. He can't encourage Elizabeth to use her Lamaze skills or anything. He can't say anything to encourage her that she can do it, that she's going to make it. He can't tell her, you can do it, honey. But Elizabeth is not alone because God has literally, as the Greek language puts it, he has magnified his mercy toward her. She is not alone as she's giving birth as an old woman. God has magnified his mercy to her, his tenderness, his compassion. Listen, I don't know what you're going through in your life during this season of Advent, but you need to know that you are not alone. Jesus is with you right now. And he will magnify his mercy. He will magnify his compassion. He will magnify his tenderness to you. That great promise of the prophet Isaiah that Elizabeth was waiting for is true for you too. Isaiah seven fourteen. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Elizabeth and the nation of Israel were waiting for this promise to be fulfilled, waiting for the Messiah to come, waiting for a virgin to give birth. They were three months away, actually, from seeing this promise begin to unfold with the birth of Jesus. They were waiting for God to show up. And that's exactly what the name Emmanuel means. It means God with us. He is with you right now, magnifying his mercy toward you. Emmanuel, God with us. This is what Isaiah and the God-fearing people in his day were clinging to. They were clinging to the promise that God would be with them. 
as the nation of Assyria trampled on Judah and all seemed hopeless, they had a promise that they could hold on to. God is with us. Emmanuel. And isn't that the way it is for God's people all the time? We're always clinging to God's promises? Certainly, Mary and Joseph were going to need this promise, this assurance of Emmanuel, because in Matthew 2, King Herod is going to try to kill baby Jesus. Joseph and Mary would need the promise of Emmanuel, God with us, in chapter 2 of Matthew, because the most powerful person in the entire world at that time, the psychotic king Herod, would put a bounty out on their little baby boy's head. So they needed this promise of Emmanuel from Isaiah chapter 7. And isn't that the way it always is for God's people all the time? God with us is all that holds us up when we feel like life is going to swallow us up. And as advanced in years Elizabeth starts to push, she needs to know that God is with her, Emmanuel. One name in the Hebrew language, Emmanuel, translated with three simple words into English. God with us, can give you all the hope that you need this Christmas. Emmanuel, God with us. In the darkest times of your life, Emmanuel, God is with you. In those moments when you feel like life is falling apart, Emmanuel, God is with you. When you are so overwhelmed with life and you think that you just can't go on, Emmanuel, God is with you. When you find yourself in situations that are just so overwhelming and you don't know what to do, where to begin, what to say, how to respond, and you just feel hopeless, and maybe you feel like dying, Emmanuel, God is with you. I just read a statistic last week. 120 people a day in the United States commit suicide. If you feel like dying today, Emmanuel, God is with you. When you're at the end of your rope, Emmanuel, Jesus, God is with you. And what I love about the name Emmanuel is that it is made up of three parts of the Hebrew language. So let me get geeky here for a minute. Emmanuel is composed of the, the uh, uh, preposition with, im, which means with, I am. And affixed to it is the first common plural pronominal suffix, anu, which means us. And then at the end, you have the name el, which means God. So you have im, this preposition, im is with, anu, us, and el, God. Im, anu, el. The Hebrew grammar may be confusing or boring to you, but it's one of the most beautiful words in Hebrew. And it just might be what you need for Christmas this year. Maybe the thing that you need for Christmas this year is a Hebrew preposition and the Hebrew first common plural pronominal suffix. And when you take a Hebrew preposition and a Hebrew first common uh, pronominal suffix and you attach it to God's name, what you get is a Hebrew promise that God is with you. And sometimes that's all you have. But it's all that you need. God is with you. Sometimes it's all you have, but it's all you need. Emmanuel, God with us. And it's not just some theology. It's just not some doctrine. It's not just a name that is composed of a Hebrew preposition and the Hebrew first common plural pronominal suffix attached to the name of God. It's more than that. It's a person. It's Jesus. 
Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. And that might be just enough to get you through whatever it is that you are going through today because Jesus is with you right now. And sometimes all you can do is just keep saying over and over again, God is with me, God is with me, God is with me, God is with me. I do that often. I did it this week. And I picture Elizabeth repeating this over and over as she is in labor. God is with me. God is with me. God is with me. God is with me. You might want to try that the next time you get stressed out or worried or scared to death. It's true. Merry Christmas, Grace. God is with you right now. But back to our story. Notice in verse 58 how Elizabeth's friends heard about God's great mercy to her, and then they show up to see her. They rejoiced with her. They entered into this moment with her. Oftentimes, God makes his invisible mercy visible by sending people of mercy to give mercy to people who need mercy. Elizabeth needed God's invisible mercy, and it came in the form of family and friends who were there to comfort her, to cook for her, to clean for her, to hold her hand and to tell her it was going to be okay, to come over and hold the baby so that she could take a much-needed nap. That's God's mercy in action. And so eight days go by, and Zechariah and Elizabeth take the boy down to the temple to get him circumcised. But notice in verse 59 that the people who gathered wanted to call the boy Zechariah after his father. They want to call him Junior. This was the custom. And if not Zechariah, then the baby at least should have some family name. And yet we see Elizabeth breaking with cultural norms to be obedient to God's word, which was spoken to them by the angel Gabriel. Elizabeth says that the boy's name will be John. And the group of friends and family who are gathered then look to Zechariah, because he's the dad, But he's mute, and so Zechariah asks for a writing tablet where he writes, his name is John. Now, remember what we saw two weeks ago. John means Yahweh is gracious. So through both the birth and the naming of John, God was reminding his people, I am gracious. I am full of grace. John was a grace child sent as a message and a messenger of God's grace to his redeemed people. God was trying to get a point across to his people. Yahweh is gracious. Yahweh is merciful. Yahweh cares. Why? Why get that message across? Because we, for, we tend to forget how good he is, don't we? Remember, the nation of Israel was under Roman oppression. Herod was a crazy psycho leader who, in Matthew's gospel, will slaughter every boy aged two and under except for Jesus. Remember, too, that it had been some 400 years since they had heard God speak through one of the prophets. And now God was beginning to speak to his people through an old lady who miraculously and mercifully gives birth in her old age. Most people were not expecting God to intervene in this way. Who would have guessed that God would cause an old woman to get pregnant? God was shattering all of their perceptions. He was doing stuff like he often does in surprising ways. That's how Jesus rolls, if you don't know that. He often works in surprising ways. You might want to get used to that. You might want 
to become comfortable with the fact that Jesus often does things that will shatter your perceptions. You might want to come to grips with the fact that Jesus will very often do wild and unexpected things in your life that will absolutely leave you flabbergasted. You might want to get used to saying, I totally did not see that coming. That's discipleship. Many people were thinking, if Yahweh is gracious, then why are we still under the control of Rome? Why does this crazy psycho leader Herod keep saying and doing crazy psycho things? And yet God is letting his people know once again that he is gracious. Because an old woman who is advanced in years just gave birth to a boy named Yahweh is gracious. And as verse 65 states, the story of John's birth began spreading throughout all the hill country of Judea. People began having conversations about how gracious the Lord is. So God was setting up the scene for the arrival of his son Jesus. Now, lest we get on a high horse here about them and how they're doubting God, don't we do the same Things get dark, things get bleak, and our lives start to fall apart. And then what do we think? God must have forgotten about me. Why are things going wrong? Where is God? Does Jesus really care about me? And yet God is there all along waiting to intervene in his time with megaluno mercy to magnify his mercy toward us. And when he does, and he will, we see his hands so clear, so evident that we can then say, God, you are indeed gracious. You are merciful. You really do care about me. God intervenes in the lives of his people, and he often does it at the last minute. Amen? You can amen. He's not going to get you for that. He often intervenes at the last minute and in surprising ways that shatter every category that we have. He does that. Because that's how he gets the glory. We want God to get the glory, right? We, we say that. We tip our hat to that. Say, I just want God to be glorified on my terms. We want God to get the glory, but the way he often gets the glory is by putting us in very impossible positions and situations so that he is the only one who can help, and that's how he gets the glory. And one way that he gets the glory is when his mercy is on display. God is more glorious in his mercy than in any other attribute. It's true. There is more mercy in Christ than sin in us. Our sins, they are many, but his mercy is more. Back to our story. Look at verse 63. And Zechariah asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately Zechariah's mouth was open and his tongue loosed and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. As soon as Zechariah wrote on the tablet, everyone's confused. John? What do you mean, John? Where does that name come from? No one in your family is named John, Zechariah. And as all they're all talking about what Zechariah has written, his tongue is loose. Imagine nine months of silence. I believe what Zechariah said next is recorded in verses 68 through 79. 
which we'll look at in a moment, this song that he sings. I believe that when Zechariah was able to speak again, he took his son John in his arms, and then he sang the song that we have in verses 68 through 79. And after Zechariah sang the song of praise to Yahweh, verse 65 says that fear came over all the people. They couldn't believe what they just witnessed and what they were hearing. Zechariah could speak again. And his first songs, first words were a song about how God has magnified his mercy toward Israel. And then word began to spread. People began talking about it. It was all over Facebook, all over Twitter. People wondered what kind of child John would be because the hand of the Lord was with him. And so Zechariah's song was all over the airwaves. It was the most listened to song on Spotify. And what a beautiful song it is. It's a song which affirms God's covenant-keeping character. It's a song about how faithful God is to his people and how faithful he is to his promises. It's a song that highlights the out-of-this-world out mercy of God. It's a song declaring that, that Yahweh keeps his promises, his covenant promises. It's a song about the megaluno mercy of God. Zechariah, you know, it just struck me. He wasn't bitter. He wasn't bitter with being unable to speak for nine months. Praise comes out of his mouth. When he suffers, he's not like me because I complain and have pity parties. He suffers, and the first words out of his mouth are, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. Zechariah's song was a fresh reminder that the Lord was breaking into the world now. And preparing his people for the coming of the promised Messiah, the Redeemer, their Savior, Jesus Christ. But don't lose sight of the fact here that the nation of Israel had to wait a long time for these things to happen. They heard the Savior was coming. Redemption was on its way. But they had to wait. They had to wait for John to be born. They had to wait for Jesus to be born. They had to wait for both of these boys to grow up. Wait while John prepped the nation with sermons highlighting God's mercy and kindness like we saw in Mark chapter 1. And wait for John to preach these sermons highlighting God's mercy so that it would begin thawing the hearts of God's people. They had to wait 30 years for John to begin preaching and being the forerunner who prepared the way of the Lord. They had to wait for Jesus to launch his ministry. They had to wait three years for Jesus to go to the cross. And then they had to wait for Jesus to return and set up his eternal kingdom. Wait wait, wait. Christianity entails a whole lot of waiting. We have to wait too. We're just like them. Today you're hearing that God can bring redemption out of your mess, but you have to wait to see that. You have to wait to see how God will bring good out of the mess in your life right now. The nation had to wait even though there was a buzz in the air. What does John's birth mean? What's happening? What is God going to do? Is the Messiah coming? When will the Messiah deliver us? When will he set up his kingdom? And what started this buzz? It's Zechariah's song that he sings here. Zechariah hasn't spoken in over nine months, and his first words are a song about how merciful and how caring and how kind and how compassionate and how tender the Lord is. Look at verse 67. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, 
For he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Two times Zechariah sings of God's mercy. In fact, mercy is all over Luke chapter 1. Luke wants us to come away from this section of his gospel with the understanding that God is full of mercy. Mercy is mentioned five times in chapter 1. In verse 50, 54, 58, 72, and 78. So why does the song of mercy spread throughout the hill country? Why is God causing this mercy song to spread like wildfire throughout Israel? Get this. Here's why. Because his mercy is what will prick the hearts of his people to return to the Lord. It's his mercy that's going to begin thawing out their frozen hearts. It's his mercy, his kindness that will lead them back to repentance, which is exactly what we saw in Mark chapter 1 with John's preaching. John Bunyan said this, Mercy is the antidote against sin. Tis of a thawing nature. Twill loose the heart that is frozen up in sin. Yea, twill make the unwilling willing to come to Jesus Christ for life. That's why Zechariah sings of mercy. Because mercy will thaw the cold heart out. Mercy will melt the heart frozen in sin. Mercy will thaw your cold heart out this morning. It will melt your heart if it's frozen up in sin right now. Look at verse 78. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God. What will this baby boy named John do? He will prepare the way for Jesus, prepare the way for salvation. He will come preaching sermons that highlight God's mercy to sinners, that he is a forgiving God. Why? Luke tells us. Because of the tender mercy of God. Because God is merciful. Because God will not forsake his people. Even when they forsake him. His mercy is tenacious. His mercy is all over the pages of scripture. The Bible wonderfully enlarges his mercy beyond all dimensions whatsoever. And the word translated mercies here, the Greek word is splotna. 
It means literally bowels of mercy, guts of mercy. The idea is that the Lord feels this mercy and this compassion for us in his gut. When someone that you love gets news of cancer or passes away or your girlfriend dumps you, where do you feel it? You feel it in your gut. That's the idea here. So Jesus has these bowels of mercy, these guts of mercy. It's, it's where he feels it. It's this passion, this feeling of mercy that you feel in your gut. Jesus feels it in his gut for his people right now. Because Jesus feels this overwhelming mercy and compassion and tenderness in his gut, Puritan Richard Sibb said, he cannot restrain his bowels of mercy long. Jesus cannot restrain his mercy. He's give it away like Oprah does. He just moves out in mercy and compassion toward us. You see it in Genesis chapter 3 with Adam and Eve. He comes quickly in mercy. You see it with the Ark of the Covenant. The lid of the Ark of the Covenant was called what? The mercy seat. Now, what was inside the Ark of the Covenant? The law of God. The Ten Commandments. Inside the Ark of the Covenant was God's law. And we know God's law condemns all of us as sinners. It exposes all of us as sinners. And what was over God's law? It was the lid. It was the mercy seat. The mercy seat was a type of Christ covering the law, covering the curse. And even though we are guilty of the curse of the law a thousand times over, God in Christ is merciful to us because Christ is the mercy seat. God meets sinners at the mercy seat. Where does our sin and where does God's holiness as expressed in the law, meet at the mercy seat, at at the cross. God meets sinners at the mercy seat where the blood was applied. And you see his mercy even at the end of the Bible. Because what's hovering over God's throne right now? John tells us this in Revelation 4. At once I was in the spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, and one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. What's hovering over God's throne right now? It's a rainbow. A rainbow. You know your Old Testament, don't you? What does that mean? In Noah's day, the rainbow was the covenant sign of God's mercy to sinners. And when John says that God has the appearance of jasper and carnelian, here's what he means. Jasper, there were several stones called jasper in ancient times. This stone was, it was translucent. It was clear as crystal, and it sparkled, and it flashed when it was polished. So when John describes God this way, he's describing him as being infinitely glorious and holy. Then John says he was also like carnelian. Carnelian has a a reddish color like fire. So what John means when he describes God this way, he's describing God's anger at sin. This is the righteous anger of God at man's sin. And so you have God's character, which is holy and glorious, and you have his red-hot hatred of sin, and then there's the rainbow. 
then there is the rainbow above God. The rainbow hovers over the throne of God, suggesting God's mercy. The holiness of God, the glory of God, the red-hot anger of God at man's sin is surrounded by the symbol of mercy, which is the rainbow. In other words, divine mercy overarches all of God's deeds. God's mercy overarches all that he does. The rainbow hovering over the throne of God is eternal proof that God's mercy overarches all that he does. Which means that when we turn away from God, he doesn't turn away from us. He is merciful toward us. Hear his heart towards his people in Hosea. Hosea 11, 7 through 8. My people are bent on turning away from me. That's my life verse, I think. Actually, I think my life verse would probably be from a Beatles song, but that's a whole other story. My people are bent on turning away from me. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I think these are some of the most beautiful words in Scripture. God's people have continually turned away from the Lord, and yet His heart moves toward them in compassion and mercy. And that's exactly what's happening here in Luke chapter 1. The nation of Israel had turned away from the Lord. The religious leaders, we know the Pharisees in the Gospels, they have absolutely turned away from the Lord. Although they say they're serving Him. So the nation has turned away from the Lord. And so God is revealing His heart for His rebellious children here in Luke 1 to allure them to love Him. He's sending Zechariah's mercy song Throughout the land. He's sending John the Baptist to prepare the way for Jesus. Why? Luke tells us it's because of the tender mercy of God. God's heart recoils within him when his people walk away from him. When we run away from Jesus, his heart recoils. It is overthrown with compassion and mercy. And he moves out in tenderness toward us. Yes, he disciplines us. Hebrews 12. He disciplines us. But his knee-jerk reaction is one of kindness, mercy, tenderness, compassion. After all, what leads us to repentance when we're bent on turning away? When we turn away from Jesus and we just want to enjoy our sin, what is it that leads us to repentance, to turn back again? Is it the law? Is it the whips and terrors and threats of the law? Is it being told, get your act together? Does that work with your kids, parents? Get in there and clean your room. They might do it, but on the inside, they're not wanting to do it. What leads us to repentance? It's not the whips and terrors and threats of the law. Paul tells us in Romans 2.4, it's his kindness that leads us to repentance, to turn away from sin and turn back to him. And we see his kindness here in Hosea chapter 11 because when we run away after other lovers, Hosea tells us that Yahweh's compassion grows warm and tender. The Hebrew word for here is for warm is kamar. It's used of an oven heating up in the book of Lamentations. So the picture, God's anger doesn't flare up when his adopted children 
our sin and run away. When those who are in union with Christ, who have received his righteousness by faith, his anger doesn't flare up at us when we sin. Rather, his compassion does it. It warms up. It begins heating up like an oven, not in anger, but compassion and mercy and tenderness. Because God knows when we feel the warmth of his love. Not a frown and a scowl on his face. When we feel the warmth of his love, when we're in our sin, that's what will call us back home. Richard Sibbs said, And when we feel ourselves cold in affection and duty, the best way to warm ourselves at this fire is at this fire of his love and mercy in giving himself for us. Let me ask you this morning, is your heart cold? Is your heart cold to Jesus today? Is your heart frozen up in sin? The best way to warm yourself is at the fire of his love and mercy. Come warm yourself around the gospel today. Come warm yourself at his fire, the fire of his love and mercy in giving himself for us at the cross. Take heart today, friends. There is more mercy in Christ than sin in us. And may the warm and tender heart of Jesus warm your heart for him today. As we close, a few days ago, one of my heroes passed away, R.C. Sproul, Ligonier Ministries. The last sermon that R.C. preached was a few weeks ago on November 26th, actually. That's how I want to go out. I want to go out like, he preached just a couple weeks ago and he's dead. I don't want that to happen today, but... Maybe when I'm like 80. The last sermon that he preached was a few weeks ago on November 26th. These are the final words from his final sermon. He said, I pray, and he didn't know he was going to go. I pray with all my heart that God will awaken each one of us today to the sweetness, the loveliness, the glory of the gospel declared by Christ. And That's my prayer for us today. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would awaken each one of us here to the sweetness and the loveliness and the tenderness and the glory of the good news of the gospel of your Son and what he has done for us through his life and death and resurrection. Warm our hearts. If there's anyone here today, Father, whose heart is frozen up in sin and they're bitter and angry or they're just, they're just loving their sin, God, May they see you not coming at them with a whip, but may they see you coming out in compassion and tenderness, and may that warm their hearts to come back to the God that loves them so much. Warm us again, Father. Awaken us to the sweetness, the loveliness, and the glory of the gospel declared by your Son, Jesus. Do it by the power of the Holy Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.